The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners just like you. Go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain the goal of keeping this show fully independent and free of advertising. You will also gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else. Once again, that's patreon.com slash howisthismovie. And now, for our featured presentation. Are you coming back to Gotham for long, sir? As long as it takes. I'm going to show the people of Gotham their city doesn't belong to the criminals and the corrupt. In the Depression, your father nearly bankrupted Wayne Enterprises combating poverty. He believed that his example could inspire the wealthy of Gotham to save their city. Did it? In a way, their murder shocked the wealthy and the powerful into action. People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy, and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. As a man, I'm flesh and blood. I can be ignored, I can be destroyed, but as a symbol, as a symbol, I can be incorruptible. I can be everlasting. What symbol? Something elemental, something terrifying. In early 1989, if you heard the name Batman, your thoughts would immediately turn to the ridiculously campy 1960s TV show starring Adam West and Burt Ward. This was unless you were a hardcore comic book fan. Then you would conjure up many different versions of the Dark Knight. But for most of us, myself included, Batman was a joke. In fact, most comic book film adaptations, with the exception of the first two Superman films, were never given a second thought. When Warner Brothers announced that it was bringing Batman to the big screen in summer of 1989, no one took it very serious. Now keep this in mind. Summer 89 had much bigger films on the horizon, with Ghostbusters 2 and Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade just to name a few. Again, no one cared about Batman. Things got even worse when we found out that Michael Keaton was going to play Batman. I mean, come on. Mr. Mom was going to play Batman? I will say that the negative feelings towards the film eased up quite a bit when the first trailer debuted. From the first few seconds of that trailer, it was clear that this Batman film was going to be a much more serious adaptation of Bob Kane's work than we had ever seen on the screen before. Directing the film was Tim Burton, whose two previous films, Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice, had gained an above-cult status. And I think the public soon realized that this now-eccentric auteur was going to be a perfect fit. A buzz started building as Warner Brothers' marketing machine went into overdrive. Before the film even came out, Batman was once again cool. You couldn't walk two blocks in any city without seeing someone wearing the iconic Batman logo. In previous episodes, I've told the story of about receiving a Batman logo coffee cup at the age of 11. Uh, my folks were clearly thinking long-term with a gift like that. But that mug is sitting next to me on my desk as I'm recording this. When Batman debuted in 1989, it wasn't just a hit, it was a phenomenon. Not since Star Wars back in 1977 were so many people seeing this film twice, even three times in the theater. Let me tell you about this guy I know, Jack. Mean kid, bad seed, hurt people. I like him already. <laughs> now, you know, the problem was he got sloppy, you know, crazy. He started to lose it. He had a head full of bad wiring, I guess. Couldn't keep it straight up here. He was the kind of guy who couldn't hear the train until it was 
two feet from. You know what happened to this guy, Jack? Wow. Made mistakes. And then he had his... This is Now you want to get nuts? Come on! Let's get nuts. Tell me something, my friend. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? What? I always ask that of all my prey. I just like the sound of it. <laughs> Never rub another man's rhubarb. <laughs> I can recall quite fondly my first time seeing the film and my amazement with what I was watching. I became a Batman fan for life. Now, Sometimes it's tough being a fan. Think about your favorite sports team for a moment. Think about how long you've been a fan of that team. For most of us, those teams don't go to the championship game every year. Hell, for a lot of us, our teams may not have ever made it to the big game. But you stick by your team. That's what being a fan is. So you can imagine, being a Batman fan in the 1990s wasn't an easy stretch. When Burton came back in 1992's Batman Returns, once again, the hype machine kicked into overdrive. Batman 89 made a worldwide gross of $411 million, but Burton was heavily restricted when it came to the filmmaking choices. The studio flexed a lot of influence on the first film. However, after the film's massive success, the studio not only backed off Burton's decision-making, but also doubled the budget from $41 million to $80 million for Batman Returns. Now, left to his own devices, Burton crafted a substantially darker film in almost all of its tones. I remember seeing the film at age 13, and even then the changes in tone were incredibly noticeable. Gone was the iconic over-the-top performance of the Joker by Nicholson. In place, we now had Danny DeVito's portrayal of the Penguin, Michelle Pfeiffer as Selena Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman, yet Michael Keaton reprised his role as Bruce Wayne. Admiring your handiwork? Touring the riot scene. Gravely assessing the devastation. Upstanding mayor stuff. You're not the mayor. Things change. What do you want? Ah, the direct approach. I admire that in a man with a mask. <laughs> you don't really think you'll win, do you? Things change. And rounding out the cast was Christopher Walken as Max Shrek. Batman Returns opened to strong numbers, but it didn't have the lasting effects of Batman 89. When its theatrical run was over, the film took in a solid $266 million. That's only half of what Batman 89 took in with double the budget. Now, the studio execs, they were not happy with those numbers. A third film was a no-brainer. That was going to happen. Warner Brothers decided it was time to bring in a new director, a fresh set of eyes to reinvent the series. They turned to one of their own, Joel Schumacher a director who had a string of successful films for the studio, including St. Elmo's Fire, The Lost Boys, Flatliners, Falling Down, and The Client. One of the main reasons why the studio felt that Batman Returns wasn't the success they wanted was due to the violence in the film. Warner Brothers had garnered a lot of complaints from parents. They knew the third film needed to be more family-friendly, a decision that Joel Schumacher was 100% on board with. Burton did stay on as producer, 
but he was left out of the real decision-making process. Michael Keaton opted not to reprise his role, and the role of Batman for the third film was now going to be played by Val Kilmer. But he wasn't the star of the film, not by any stretch of the imagination. No, the star of 1995's Batman Forever was clearly Jim Carrey, Mr. Can't Miss, who in just two short years had catapulted to the top. He was commanding a then-unheard-of $20 million per role, and it was very clear by the Warner Brothers marketing team that he was the main attraction of this film. When the film was released in 1995, I was in New York City with my mother. We were there for a week to see a number of Broadway plays. Our schedule was packed with shows like Phantom of the Opera, Cats, Les Miserables, just to name a few. But one evening we found that we had some downtime. We made a choice to go see Batman Forever. I mean, when you were in New York City in 1995, especially in Times Square, you couldn't escape the marketing for Batman Forever. Every building in Times Square had some type of character or Batman logo on it, and this was going to be the first time that I would ever see a movie in New York City. Ironically, the theater we went to was in Times Square, and that was an experience itself. I can remember the place being packed, and trying to order popcorn was something akin to the Soup Nazi episode of Seinfeld. I stood in line and watched each person give their order as quick as possible, because they knew that the angry attendant serving the concessions would only give you three seconds before he would yell, hurry up. When my turn came up, I quickly yelled, large popcorn, large Coke. Feeling confident that he was going to yell at me, I smiled and held up my money. Do you want butter on that? Uh, uh, well, do you? Damn it, he got me. Commissioner Gordon? He's at home. I sent the signal. What's wrong? Last night at the bank, I noticed something about Two-Face. His coin. It's his Achilles heel. It can be exploited. I know. You called me here for this. The bat signal is not a beeper. Well, I wish I could say that my interest in you was purely professional. You're trying to get under my cape, Doctor? <laughs> a girl can't live by psychoses alone. It's the car, right? Chicks love the car. <laughs> what is it about the wrong kind of man? In grade school, it was guys with earrings. College, motorcycles, leather jackets. Now? Oh. Black rubber. Try firemen, less to take off. I don't mind the work. Pity I can't see behind the mask. We all wear masks. My life's an open book. You read? I don't blend in at a family picnic. Oh, we could give it a try. I'll bring the wine. You bring your scarred psyche. Direct, aren't you? You like strong women. I've done my homework. Or do I need skin-tight vinyl and a whip? I haven't had that much luck with women. I made it about halfway through the film when I looked over at my mother and whispered, we can leave any time. I was 16 years old, and I was crushed at how much I didn't like the movie. It was campy, it was goofy, and worst of all, the humor wasn't funny. I'm looking at you, Mr. Carey. Batman Forever had a $100 million budget and took in $336 million. And the only good thing that came out of Batman Forever, in my opinion, was Seal's song, Kiss from a Rose. 20 years later, and I still love that damn song. In early 1997, I saw something you rarely see these days. A movie trailer that made the film look so bad that you couldn't believe that they cut it together and somebody signed off on it. It was almost as if Warner Brothers didn't want you to go see this next Batman film, Batman and Robin. The fourth film released in the franchise this time around had George Clooney playing Batman, 
who was fresh off a very good performance in From Dusk Till Dawn. There was no Jim Carrey, no Tommy Lee Jones. Instead, we had Uma Thurman and the Terminator himself, Arnold Schwarzenegger, playing Mr. Freeze. The blood will freeze in my hands. Kill them, of course. But why stop there? Why should only Batman and Robin die while the society that created them goes unpunished? Yes. If I must suffer, humanity will suffer with me. I shall repay them for sentencing me to a life without the warmth of human comfort. I will blanket the city in endless winter. First, Gotham. And then, the world! Just what I had in mind. Now, I didn't see this film in the theater. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure that I've ever seen the film from start to finish. Batman and Robin had a huge $140 million budget, and it brought in a meager $238 million. Now, for the record, of all the Batman films released since 1989's Batman, Batman and Robin still carries the moniker of the lowest grossing film. But here's something I'd like to talk about. If Batman and Robin had been a big hit, how far do you think this version of the franchise would have gone? Here's something to think about. As bad as Batman and Robin is, in my mind, it was necessary. Let me explain. You see, during the filming of Batman and Robin, the execs at Warner Brothers were so impressed with what they were seeing that they went ahead and greenlit a fifth film. The title was Batman Triumphant. Clooney, O'Donnell, and Silverstone all signed up to star in Batman Triumphant. The villain this time around was going to be the Scarecrow, and all signs pointed towards Nicolas Cage in that role. Joel Schumacher would have directed, but since Batman and Robin did such horrible numbers, Warner Brothers decided to scrap the film and hit the reset button. And this is why I say Batman and Robin was important, it was a necessary evil, and it helped to shape the overall landscape of the upcoming Dark Knight trilogy. Now, Warner Brothers, they weren't just going to hit the reset button and wait a little bit. No, as early as 1998, the studio was hearing pitches from several different writers and directors, and by 1999, the studio had narrowed their choice down to two different versions of Batman. They were either going to go with Batman Beyond or Batman Year One. With Batman Beyond, you immediately had a much darker version of Batman taking away all the silliness and campiness of Batman and Robin. And with Batman Year One, you still had that much darker version, but you also had Batman's true origin story. Year One was based on a graphic novel written by Frank Miller. The studio made the decision to go with Year One. They hired Miller to work on the screenplay, and they went on a search for a director. After Warner Brothers met with several different directors, they made the decision to go with Darren Aronofsky. And when he was an upcoming director who shared Miller's vision for the project. Aronofsky was so devoted to completely rebooting and rehauling the franchise that he strongly advocated that this Batman film be rated R, something that Warner Brothers was not even going to discuss. This caused a lot of friction between the studio and Aronofsky. Now, just to show you how quickly things can change, in early 2000, Warner Brothers completely abandoned the project and made the choice to go with a Superman-Batman crossover. Now, if that sounds a little bit familiar, we've got a Superman versus Batman film coming out in less than a year. They hired J.J. Abrams to write the script and were in talks with Brett Ratner and McGee for directing duties. This film actually came very close to being produced. They had an entire cast in place, a budget allotted, but major creative differences soon emerged. Warner Brothers turned to Brian Singer, who had just come off a string of successful films with the X-Men franchise, and they asked him to rewrite the script. Well, he shed any element of Batman being in the film, and it took a few years, but the final product turned out to be 2006's Superman Returns. Now, let's go back to 1998 just for a moment. With the craziness that was Batman going on in Hollywood and Warner Brothers, across the pond in England, a small 70-minute student film called Following was garnering a lot of attention. Made for just $6,000, Following 
which was being screened in a few theaters in England, took in an impressive 240000 The director of Following was given a chance to, to adapt another one of his scripts. This time around, he was able to secure a $5 million budget, and in 2000, a small independent film called Memento hit theaters. The film was a surprise hit, taking in almost $40 million, and for its director, Christopher Nolan, it opened several doors in Hollywood. Nolan all of a sudden had his choice of projects to work on, and the first big studio film he did was for Warner Brothers. The film, Insomnia, starring Al Pacino, Hilary Swank, and Robin Williams. It was a modest hit, taking in $113 million on a $46 million budget. The Warner executives liked Nolan and literally asked him, what are you interested in doing next? He told them that he's always been a fan of Batman and he would love a chance to reboot the franchise. How he pitched Batman to them was explaining the importance of Batman being in a plausible reality, one that audiences could relate to. No more campy Batman and Robin. No more ultra-gothic Burton style. No, this time around, he wanted everything that happened in the film to be something that viewers could at least, in a way, identify with. Warner Brothers execs were sold on his pitch, and they gave him the opportunity to pursue the idea further. Nolan has gone on record saying that even though he was a big Batman fan, he was not up to speed on all the different appearances that Batman has made in comics and graphic novels. And Nolan wanted his version of Batman to pay homage to those writings. He needed an expert on the subject of comics and Batman in comics. He turned to David S. Goyer, a screenwriter whose credits included The Crow, City of Angels, and The Blade Trilogy. Nolan had found his guy, and the two spent months working out of Nolan's garage, sharing ideas, and crafting a script that was not only going to be a crowd-pleaser, but a script that paid tribute to Batman's comic book roots. Now, Goyer took some of the most notable characters and situations from a few different Batman comics, including Batman Year One, Batman The Man Who Falls, and Batman The Long Halloween. All three of those books were celebrated among Batman fanboys and enthusiasts. Let's look at this for a moment. What do the first four films in Warner Brothers franchise all have in common? Well, the answer is there was always a heavy emphasis on the villains. Whether it was Nicholson's Joker, DeVito's Penguin, Carrie's Riddler, or Schwarzenegger's Mr. Freeze, all of the marketing of those films were centered around the villains. For Batman Begins, there was going to be a major shift in this formula. This was going to be a Batman movie about Batman. You were either going to have Bruce Wayne or Batman on the screen for 90% of the film. So it was of great importance that Nolan cast the right person to play this iconic role. Everyone from Jake Gyllenhaal, Joshua Jackson, Heath Ledger, and Cillian Murphy auditioned. However, it was an up-and-coming actor who had made his mark in 2000's American Psycho that caught the eye of Nolan. When Christian Bale auditioned for the role, he was asked to wear the Batsuit from 1995's Batman Forever. Nolan loved Bale. Now, I will say this. If you haven't seen Batman Begins, well, let me say thank you for making it this far into the episode. But when it comes to talking about the villains of Batman Begins, well, there are three. There's Tom Wilkerson's mobster Falcone. You're taller than you look in the tabloids, Mr. Wayne. No gun. I'm insulted. You could have just sent a thank you note. I didn't come here to thank you. I came here to show you that not everyone at Gotham's afraid of you. Only those who know me, kid. Look around you. You'll see two councilmen, a union official, a couple off-duty cops, and a judge. Now, I wouldn't have a second's hesitation in blowing your head off right here and right now in front of them. Now, that's power you can't buy. That's the power of fear. I'm not afraid of you. Because you think you got nothing to lose. But you haven't thought it through. You haven't thought about your lady friend down in the DA's office. You haven't thought about your old butler. Bang! People from your world have so much to lose. Now you think, because your mommy and your daddy got shot, you know about the ugly side of life, but you don't. 
You've never tasted desperate. You're, uh, you're Bruce Wayne, the Prince of Gotham. You'd have to go a thousand miles to meet someone who didn't know your name. So don't, don't come down here with your anger, trying to prove something to yourself. This is a world you never understand, and you always fear what you don't understand. Cillian Murphy's Scarecrow, and the one that catches most people by surprise, spoiler alert, is Liam Nielsen's Ra's al Ghul. Are you so desperate to fight criminals that you lock yourself in to take them on one at a time? Actually, there were, uh, seven of them. I counted six, Mr. Wayne. How do you know my name? The world is too small for someone like Bruce Wayne to disappear, no matter how deep he chooses to sink. Who are you? My name is merely Ducard, but I speak for Raz Al Ghul, a man greatly feared by the criminal underworld. A man who can offer you a path. What makes you think I need a path? Someone like you is only here by choice. You have been exploring the criminal fraternity, but whatever your original intentions, you have become truly lost. On what path, then? Raz al Ghul offer. The path of a man who shares his hatred of evil and wishes to serve true justice. The path of the League of Shadows. <laughs> the vigilantes. No, no, no. The vigilante is just a man lost in the scramble for his own gratification. He can be destroyed or locked up. But. If you make yourself more than just a man, if you devote yourself to an ideal, and if they can't stop you, then you become something else entirely. Which is? Legend, Mr. Wayne. A character who does an about-face halfway through the film. Now, Batman Begins wasn't just an origin story for Bruce Wayne. It was also an origin story for Jim Gordon, the man who would eventually become police commissioner. In Batman Begins, Gordon finds that he is the only honest cop in a sea of corrupt officers. Nolan casts Gary Oldman, who is a chameleon when it comes to acting. Before Batman Begins, Oldman had turned out impressive performances in everything from True Romance to Luke Besson's The Professional. Morgan Freeman was cast as Lucius Fox, the one man at Wayne Enterprises that Bruce can trust. It's Fox that gives Bruce Wayne all the tools he needs to fulfill his role as Batman. Well, what is it today? Morse belonging? No. Today it's base jumping. Base jumping? Is that like parachuting? Kind of. Do you have any lightweight fabrics? You know, I think I have just the thing. It's called memory cloth. Notice anything? Regularly flexible. But put a current through it. Molecules realign, become rigid. What kind of shapes can you make? Can be tailored to fit any structure based on a rigid skeleton. Too expensive for the army? Well, I don't think they ever tried to market it to the billionaire spelunking base jumping crowd. Look, Mr. Fox. Yes, sir. If you're uncomfortable. Mr. Wayne, if you don't want to tell me exactly what you're doing, when I'm asked, I don't have to lie. But don't think of me as an idiot. Fair enough. What's that? More the tumbler? Oh, you wouldn't be interested in that. 
And rounding out the cast is Sir Michael Caine, who plays Alfred, Bruce Wayne's trusted guardian and the man who takes care of Bruce after his parents were killed. I thought I might prepare a little supper. Very well. Alfred. Yes, Master Bruce. It was my fault, Alfred. I made the deed to the if my hand got scared. It was nothing that you did. It was him and him alone. Do you understand? I miss him, Alfred. I miss him so much. So do I, Master Bruce. Oh yeah, and Katie Holmes was in the film. For Nolan, when it comes to filmmaking, he has a vision for the entire project from start to finish. I say this because Nolan didn't have a second unit film crew to shoot the otherwise mundane scenes that most directors don't have the time or can't be bothered to shoot. Nolan was behind every single scene in the film. Now the majority of the film was actually shot on studio locations in England. Some scenes were shot in Iceland, and the famous Tumblr chase was filmed in the streets of Chicago. Now, talking about the Tumblr just for a moment, or Batmobile, Nolan made a drastic change to the overall style of the iconic car. He chose function over aesthetics. The designers produced several different mock-ups and models, and when they finally settled on the version that we all know, they built four working vehicles. I mean, it's a pretty impressive-looking yeah. vehicle. One thing I know is about Chris Nolan films, he really seems to go for realism. Yes. The vehicles have to yes. do what they do. And to me, that's why I always like when the Bourne films, the cars really do make the yes. jump. Yeah. Everything has to be realistic. And, and that's what I thought was pretty neat about this, because people are pretty sophisticated now. You can spot... Right. you know, CGI. Yeah. Was this actually jumped and yes. went down the road? Yes. Tell us about the vehicle. How, how long did it take to build it? Uh, it took them about a year to build the first prototype, yeah. and uh, it, it, then the, the rest of the other cars that came after that came pretty quick. They, they built them pretty quick. Is this based on some sort of existing vehicle? I mean, just the track no. of it and the way it's No. Up? It's all custom, complete from the ground up. Chassis, body, brake, suspension, Everything is from the ground up, totally custom. And it uses a Chevy engine, correct? Yes, ZZ3 small block Chevy. Okay, very good. I mean, who actually built it? Warner Brothers, did they farm it out to one of the custom guys? Yeah, there's a special effects uh, car building crew that builds right. them. Uh, I think the, uh, the original Batman from uh, car from Batman was built by the same group of guys. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought it was sort of the most realistic of yeah. all the Batman yeah, cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it really does move yes. and go down the street, and it looks like yeah. it looks like some something you drive in Afghanistan yes. or Iran or something of that the, nature. All these are uh, uh, modular; they can replace all of this that gets damaged. It can be all replaced in a very short period of time. And what is the top speed of the vehicle? Um, I think they've had it up to eighty-five or really? ninety uh, on the on the set. That was about it. Yeah. Well, 85 or 90 on the set? That's yes, pretty good. That's, that's pretty a big good. set. Yeah, well, it's, it's Lower Wacker Drive in Chicago. Oh, okay. <laughs> the interior, however, was nothing like you saw on screen. All interior shots were filmed in a purpose-built studio. One side note, Christian Bale performed a number of his own stunts in the film, but didn't drive the tumbler once during the filming process. For the film's score, Nolan hired Hans Zimmer, who asked Nolan if he could also bring on James Newton Howard. The two composers were good friends, and they had wanted to work together for years. Zimmer's works included True Romance, Crimson Tide, and Pirates of the Caribbean, and Howard's works included Pretty Woman, The Prince of Tides, 
and six cents. So in early 2005, I was sitting in a theater watching trailers. One such preview caught my eye. On screen, you had the guy that I mentioned from American Psycho, and then you had Qui-Gon Jinn. The two were clearly doing some type of martial arts training, and for a moment, I thought I heard the name Wayne, but it still wasn't clicking. It wasn't until about halfway through this preview that I realized that this was a Batman film, and you know what? I wasn't sold. Keep in mind, I had seen Memento, and I had seen Insomnia, and I thought they were good films, but Nolan's name wasn't box office gold at least not yet. I sort of yawned off the trailer and put it on this mental checklist I had. I call it the maybe in the theater list. Being on that list meant that I wasn't going to go out of my way to see the film on opening weekend. In fact, I may just wait until it comes out on DVD. It had been eight years since Batman and Robin, and I was in no hurry to be reunited with the Dark Knight. Not in the least. On June 15, 2005, Batman Begins was released in North America. The film had a then unheard of marketing budget of $100 million. Now couple that in with an actual filmmaking budget of $150 million, Warner Brothers was all in. Now also keep this in mind, social media was still in its infant stages, and word of mouth still worked at a snail's pace. If you like something, you literally had to tell someone in person or at least call them on the phone. You weren't able to tweet or post on your Facebook status how awesome you thought something was. Well, maybe a few of you had MySpace, but let's not mince words. I say all this because I didn't see that film opening weekend. I didn't see it the following weekend. It took one of my friends telling me that, hey, you know that Batman Begins? That's not a bad film. So on its third weekend release, I bought a ticket. I grabbed a popcorn and a soda. I sat down in my seat. I watched the trailers, King Kong being one of them, and watched the Warner Brothers logo come across the screen. Now, how often do you get so immersed in a film that you forget things? You forget that you have got a large popcorn, and at the end of the film, it looks like you hadn't even put a dent in it. You forget that you're watching a matinee show and that you have to work 45 minutes after the movie is over. You forget that there was ever a shitty film in this franchise. But all of those things happened to me on that day. I ended up throwing away an entire order of large popcorn. I was late to work because I sat through the whole end credit sequence. And for the first time since 1989, I was in awe of a man who dressed as a bat. I wasn't the only one who loved Batman Begins. Critics loved it, as did audiences. And it took in almost $400 million in its theatrical run. For me, Christopher Nolan forever changed the way I would look at a superhero movie. And when I first caught wind of there being a sequel in the works, I remember clearly thinking to myself... It's going to be pretty tough to top Batman Begins. I couldn't find any mob bosses. Well, Sergeant. Oh, it's Lieutenant now. You really started something. Bent cops running scared. Hope on the streets. But? The Narrows is lost. I still haven't picked up Crane or half the inmates of Arkham that he freed. We will. We can bring Gotham back. What about Escalation? Escalation. We start carrying semi-automatics, they buy automatics. We start wearing Kevlar. They buy armor-piercing rounds. And you're wearing a mask. Jumping off rooftops. Take this guy. Armed robbery, double homicide. Got a taste for the theatrical, like you. Leaves a calling card. said thank you. And you'll never have to. Let's wind the clocks back a year. These cops and lawyers wouldn't dare cross any of you. I mean, 
What happened? Did your, your balls drop off? Hmm? You see a guy like me. Freak. A guy like me. Look, listen. I know why you choose to have your little <clears throat> group therapy sessions in broad daylight. I know why you're afraid to go out at night. The Batman. You see, Batman has shown Gotham your true colors, unfortunately. Dent, he's just the beginning. And, and as for uh, the television's so-called plan, Batman has no jurisdiction. He'll find him and make him squeal. I know the squealers when I see them. And... What do you propose? It's simple. We uh, kill the Batman. <laughs> if it's so simple, why haven't you done it already? If you're good at something, never do it for free. How much you want? Uh, half. <laughs> you're crazy. I'm not. No, I'm not. If we don't deal with this now, soon, little uh, Gamble here won't be able to get a nickel for his grandma. Enough from the clown! Let's not blow this out of proportion. You think you could steal from us and just walk away? Yeah. I'm putting the word out. 500 grand for this clown dead. A million alive. So I can teach him some manners first. All right, so listen. Why don't you give me a call when you want to start taking things a little more seriously? Here's my card. Two thousand eight. It was only eight years ago, but in comic book film terms, it was practically a lifetime ago. Two thousand and eight is the year that the current comic book movie boom started. Now, I've made no allusions to the fact that I am burnt out on comic book movies. I have been for quite some time. But back in two thousand and eight, the only movie that was on my radar that year was Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. And believe me, I was consuming as much info as I could find leading up to the film's release. Going even further back to 2005, Nolan caught most of us by surprise with Batman Begins, a movie that discarded any of the awful campiness of the previous Batman films released in 95 and 97. Instead, we were treated to a much more grounded and realistic take on the winged vigilante. I loved Batman Begins. Saw it three times in the theater. Now, the film was made on a $150 million budget, and it took in almost $400 million in its theatrical run. Now, that's not blockbuster money. But it was enough for the execs at Warner Brothers to take notice that perhaps the franchise may not only be back, but stronger than ever. But I think even more importantly, they realized that it was in very good hands with Nolan as the director. It didn't take long for them to greenlight a sequel. I think even more importantly, they were going to wait for Christopher Nolan to, to finish up his latest project, The Prestige, a film about dueling illusionists battling it out for supremacy during the turn of the 19th century. 
With The Prestige, Nolan once again worked with Christian Bale and Michael Caine. And on a modest budget of just $40 million, The Prestige took in $109 million. It also demonstrated that Nolan was a master storyteller, and many fans of Nolan cite this film amongst his best. Once Nolan was free and clear of The Prestige, he was able to once again dive headfirst into all things Batman. The beginning of The Dark Knight, you see that, that Bruce Wayne uh, and his Batman persona have matured. He's, he's really the fully formed Batman uh, from the comics, but he's also in a place where he's having to question, having to gauge the, the response uh, to his presence in Gotham that he's seeing. He's seeing a rise in copycats and vigilantism and all kinds of things going on and uh, an escalation of, of the war with organized crime. And so there are a lot of um, potentially negative consequences of, of his crusade brewing uh, in Gotham at the beginning of the film. It seemed most logical to us that if he saw himself as a symbol to inspire people, if he saw what he was doing as a, a contained thing, a short-term crusade, if you like, to inspire the good of Gotham to take the city back, that made sense to us. And so at the beginning of The Dark Knight, you're looking at a character who has embarked on this, this crusade, is looking for an end to it, and sees in the person of Harvey Dent, the new district attorney in Gotham, he, he sees the response he was looking for. He sees the legitimate face of his campaign being taken over by Harvey Dent. Uh, and I think that pleases him for a couple of reasons. I mean, it pleases him uh, in our story because this was his original aim, to see the good of, of Gotham rise again. But it also pleases him, I think, because he sees that he might be able to stop being Batman. He might be able to go back to having a, uh, a relatively normal uh, existence. He turned to Batman Begins screenwriter David S. Goyer, who had wrote a three-film treatment with parts two and three to include the most iconic Batman villain of them all, the Joker. Goyer sought inspiration when writing the Joker part from two Batman stories, two iconic Batman stories. Batman The Killing Joke, which is a soon-to-be released animated film starring Mark Hamill, and Batman The Long Halloween. Now, Nolan gave clear direction to Goyer that he had no interest in telling the Joker's origin story, which is really what The Killing Joke covers. And I need to thank Margot D. from the Book vs. Movie podcast, who did a phenomenal episode on The Killing Joke versus The Dark Knight. I, I reached out to Margot just for, a little clear, just for a little clarification when I was doing my research. So, Margot, thank you so much. But the central theme, however, of The Killing Joke was that the Joker sought out to prove that even good men can become evil a theme that is explored in The Dark Knight through the Harvey Dent character. Now, speaking of Dent for a moment, Batman The Long Halloween served as inspiration for much of Dent's character in The Dark Knight. And once Goyer and Nolan had finished and flushed out the story, Christopher Nolan turned the script over to his brother Jonathan, an accomplished screenwriter who had helped write The Prestige, to put the necessary polish on a lot of the dialogue. Warner Brothers spared no expense when it came to making the sequel, greenlighting the project with a $180 million budget. Now, one major shift Nolan made from Batman Begins was to give the city of Gotham a more realistic feel. He opted to shoot the majority of the film on location in Chicago. He grew quite fond of the city after filming the Batmobile chase scene from Batman Begins. Other locations included Hong Kong and Pinewood Studios in England. Nolan also wanted to do something a little different this time. He wanted to shoot as much of the film as possible with IMAX cameras. In 2016, that seems simple enough. But in 2007, IMAX cameras were incredibly big, noisy, and in most cases could only shoot roughly about three minutes of footage at a time. So it was decided that only a few key scenes would use the camera. Here's a little trivia note for you guys. If you watch The Dark Knight on Blu-ray, 
In some cases, you can tell when the film switches from 35mm to IMAX because the letterbox format will disappear during the IMAX scenes. This is most noticeable during the Batmobile chase in the middle of the film. Another thing I have to give Nolan a lot of credit for was his choice to use as much practical effects as he could. Using CGI as little as possible, mostly just to remove stunt harnesses and such. The scene in which the semi-truck is flipped over, they actually used a real semi-truck. It's, it's incredible. I, I urge you to go on YouTube and look at the behind the scenes of that. It's incredible. And I also want to point out that the Batmobile and the Batcycle were actual working props in the film. With respect, Master Wayne, perhaps this is a man you don't fully understand either. A long time ago, I was in Burma. My friends and I were working for the local government. They were trying to buy the loyalty of tribal leaders by bribing them with precious stones. But their caravans were being raided in a forest north of Rangoon by a bandit. So we went looking for the stones. But in six months, we never met anyone who traded with him. One day, I saw a child playing with a ruby the size of a tangerine. The bandit had been throwing them away. So why steal them? Well, because he thought it was good sport. Because some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Now we need to talk about casting. Because that's a really, really important thing and something people get very, very... Uh, how do I say it, very passionate about, when, especially when it comes to the Batman films. Now, all the principal actors that survived from Batman Begins returned, with the exception of Katie Holmes, who, according to her publicist, was offered a $2 million salary to return as Rachel Dawes, but turned it down due to a commitment to a film she was making called Mad City, which was also in production at the time. I need to stress this, that I did a lot of digging around, and, and it needs to be noted that there are several rumors swirling around that Holmes was asking for more money than the producers were willing to pay. Most fans of Batman Begins were really not sad to see her go, as a lot of people point to her acting, or lack thereof, in that film as the only low point of Batman Begins. Eventually, the role of Rachel Dawes would go to Maggie Gyllenhaal, the older sister of Jake Gyllenhaal, who had been acting for several years up until that point in films such as Donnie Darko and 40 Days and 40 Nights. For the role of Harvey Dent, Nolan looked at a few different actors, including Mark Ruffalo, Josh Lucas, and even Matt Damon. Now, Damon was very interested in the role, but had to pass due to a scheduling conflict. Aaron Eckhart, a popular character actor, was cast as Harvey Dent. He had a number of supporting roles in films such as The Core, Any Given Sunday, and Aaron Brockovich. How could you want to raise children in a city like this? Well, I, I was raised here. I turned out okay. Is Wayne uh, Manor in the city limits? Is, <laughs> the Palisades? Sure. You know, as our new DA, you might want to figure out uh, where your jurisdiction ends. I'm talking about the kind of city that idolizes a masked vigilante. Gotham City is proud of an ordinary citizen standing up for what's right. Gotham needs heroes like you, elected officials, not a man who thinks he is above exactly. the law. Exactly. Who appointed the Batman? We did. All of us who stood by and let scum take control of our city. But this is a democracy, Harvey. When their enemies were at the gates, the Romans would suspend democracy and appoint one man to protect the city. And it wasn't considered an honor. It was considered a public service. Harvey, the last man that they appointed to protect the Republic was named Caesar, and he never gave up his power. Okay, fine. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Look, whoever the Batman is, he doesn't want to do this for the rest of his life. How could he? Batman is looking for someone to take up his mantle. Someone like you, Mr. Dent? 
Maybe. If I'm up to it. What if Harvey Dent is the Caped Crusader? <laughs> if I were sneaking out every night, someone would have noticed by now. Well, I'm sold, Dent. And I'm gonna throw you a fundraiser. That's nice of you, Bruce, but I'm not up for re-election for three years. No, you don't understand. One fundraiser with my pals. You'll never need another cent. Now, one could make the case that the most difficult casting choice would have to be that of the Joker. Audiences had not seen the Joker on the big screen since Jack Nicholson's iconic performance in Tim Burton's Batman back in 1989. Robin Williams and Steve Carell both expressed a lot of interest in the role, but for Nolan, his mind was made up before pre-production even began. Back when he was casting Batman Begins, he desperately wanted Heath Ledger to play Bruce Wayne. But Ledger simply wasn't available. No one would once again try to woo him to join the franchise. Ledger was born in Australia in 1977. After graduating high school at the age of 17, he began an acting career. He found success early in his native Australia in both films and television. And in 99, landed a starring role in 10 Things I Hate About You. Between the years 2000 and 2005, Ledger was all over the place, really making his mark in Hollywood. He took on a variety of different roles, starred alongside Mel Gibson in The Patriot, opposite Billy Bob Thornton in Monster's Ball. I think it's clear to most that it was his role in 2005's Brokeback Mountain that really raised his awareness of how much of an outstanding actor he was and how much depth he had. I would be remiss if I didn't share with you what happened when I saw Brokeback Mountain in the theater. It was opening weekend. I sat in a practically full theater. Two elderly ladies were sitting right behind me, and they wouldn't shut up. At the start of the movie, I heard them talking back and forth, saying things like, Look at the mountains. Oh, they're so beautiful. Oh, look at the two young men. They're so strapping, handsome, and rugged. Now, if the talking wasn't annoying enough, it was becoming clear to me that they had no idea what this movie was about. They hadn't read a single review or even a plot synopsis. I was waiting. I was waiting for it. About 45 minutes into the movie... When the scene happens, and if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about when I say the scene. All of a sudden, I hear one of the women behind me scream, Oh my God, what's going on? Okay, that's it. We're leaving. Right, let's go. Oh, and they literally got up and ran out of the theater. I've never seen two old people run so fast in my life. Now, thankfully, I was able to watch the rest of the movie without interruption and and the impromptu commentary track that was going on behind me. And I thought it was an amazing film. And there will be an episode in the near future where I do discuss the films of 2005 and the travesty that was the 2005 Best Picture winner. But that's a story for another episode. It really was Brokeback Mountain that prevented Ledger from taking the role in Batman Begins. But this time, for The Dark Knight, he was on board. And to prepare for his role as the Joker, Ledger, who was, if anything, a very, very determined method actor, took a copy of The Killing Joke and locked himself away in a hotel room for a month. He began to develop the character. Ledger kept a journal of his activities and went into, in his own words, the darkest recesses of humanity to find the level of insanity that the Joker possesses. I had an idea of what the Joker would be in the world we created of Batman Begins. And to me, it was creating a sort of psychologically credible anarchist, um, a force of anarchy, a force of chaos, a, a purposeless criminal, uh, a psychopath. Um, to me, that was the most, that is the most frightening form of evil, the enemy who has no rules, the enemy who's not out for anything, who can't be understood, can only be, can only be fought. And uh, while uh, Jonah was working on the first draft, I, I met with Heath, and um, 
he really seemed to relate to what I was talking about. He seemed to understand how this character could be extraordinarily frightening and fresh and, and different than, than anything that had been done before. Now, as filming was about to begin and the word got out that Heath Ledger was going to play the Joker, all hell broke loose on the Internet. Here are some of the best comments I found written about the casting of Heath Ledger. Heath, let's reminisce on the days of A Knight's Tale and 10 Things I Hate About You. Heath, question mark. The Joker, question mark. Bad casting. Bad joke. Probably the worst casting of all time. Oh no, it's wrong on every level. This is total bull. I do not like this choice at all. And now begins the second downfall of the Batman series. I hope this is all a joke. This is my favorite. I am not seeing this movie if he is in it. Now, I wonder if the person who wrote that has actually seen the movie. Now, it shouldn't come as any surprise that the comments like this were out there. People were just as outraged when they announced that Michael Keaton was going to play Batman way back in 1989. The morning of January 2nd, 2008, I was testing out the features on my new Motorola Razor. I set myself up to receive breaking news reports from CNN and then went about my day. Later that night at work, I received my first breaking news text message from CNN. It read that Hollywood actor Heath Ledger had died in his apartment in New York City. By the time Heath Ledger's body was taken from the Manhattan apartment where he died, the press and media had descended en masse. His celebrity status ensured no privacy in death. Onlookers swelled the crowd as the news filtered out. The 28-year-old was discovered by his housekeeper. Prescription drugs, including sleeping pills, were nearby, leading the police to believe he may have died of an overdose, but there were no obvious signs of suicide. I can only repeat what I said, that there were prescription medications taken from the apartment. They included sleeping pills. They were not scattered about the apartment. They were his prescription medication. Medics battled in vain to revive Ledger at the apartment he moved to after the breakup with girlfriend and mother of his child, Michelle Williams. The pair had starred together in the hit movie Brokeback Mountain, for which he got an Oscar nomination. The role of gay cowboy propelled him into the Hollywood elite, guaranteeing a legion of fans, some of whom turned out within hours to pay their respects. Ledger died at a point when his star was most definitely in the ascendant. The Australian who moved to the States at the age of 19 quickly turned his back on teen movies, choosing more challenging films and earning something of a cult following. He recently took on the iconic role of the Joker in the new and yet-to-be-released Batman movie. He was widely regarded as a private man, shunning the media glare and the celebrity spotlight. I've kind of developed a more diplomatic way of viewing it all and handling it and I'm certainly more relaxed with it all and um, um, but I, I you know I don't you know should the, the photographers following you and all that kind of stuff it, it, that you know it gets it's embarrassing more than anything actually it's just kind of embarrassing to be walking somewhere and have people jump out in front of you with cameras Police quickly ruled out any foul play here at Ledger's apartment. An autopsy later today may confirm their theory that drugs were responsible for his death, but the medical evidence may not answer the question of whether any overdose was deliberate or accidental. Michelle Clifford, Sky News, New York. Man, that one threw me for a loop. And I remember thinking, shit, that's awful. It wasn't even really until the next day that it occurred to me that he was the one who was going to play the Joker. And I began to wonder if they were going to reshoot the role with a different actor. 
After a few weeks, Warner Brothers released a statement saying that Ledger had filmed all of his scenes and that the movie was going to be moving forward and released summer of that year. All of a sudden, the tone surrounding this movie changed. And when the first teaser trailer was released, the buzz became massive. I knew the mob wouldn't go down without a fight. But this is different. They've crossed the line. You crossed the line first, sir. You hammered them. And in their desperation, they turned to a man they didn't fully understand. Some men aren't looking for anything logical. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Starting tonight, people will die. I'm a man of my word. No longer were people shouting their outrage over the Ledger casting. Everyone wanted to see this movie, myself included. I broke my never go to the theater on opening weekend rule, which I do from time to time, and was there 10 a.m. Friday morning, July 18th, 2008. I sat in a sold-out theater. The audience that was there with me never made a sound. Everyone was focused on what was happening on screen. You wanted me. Here I am. I wanted to see what you'd do. And you didn't disappoint. You let five people die. Then you let Dent take your place. Even to a guy like me, that's cold. Where's Dent? Those mob fools want you gone so they can get back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things. Forever. And why do you want to kill me? (laughs) I I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, 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 you, you complete me. You're garbage, you kills for money. Don't talk like one of them, you're not. Even if you'd like to be. To them, you're just a freak. Like me. They need you right now. But when they don't, they'll cast you out. Like a leper. See, their morals, their code, it's a bad joke. We've dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. I'll show you. When the chips are down, these, uh, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. See, I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. Have all these rules, and you think they'll save you? It's in control. I have one rule. Oh, then that's the rule you'll have to break to know the truth. Which is? The only sensible way to live in this world is without rules. And tonight you're gonna break your one rule. I'm considering it. No, there's only minutes left. So you're gonna have to play my little game if you want to save one of them. Yeah. There was no one talking. It was grand. The first time Ledger makes an appearance on screen as the Joker, it's engrossing. So engrossing that any time that he wasn't on the screen, he was missed. Not saying the movie was bad without him, just he brought it to another level. 
The Dark Knight had a $158 million opening weekend and surpassed all expectations by bringing in more than a billion dollars in its theatrical run, something that happens a lot more frequently today in 2016. Critics praised not only the movie, but also Ledger's performance. Empire Magazine ranked it as the 25th greatest film of all time out of a list of 500 films. Entertainment Weekly ranked Ledger's Joker as the number five all-time movie villain. And The Dark Knight currently holds a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. As for me, The Dark Knight became both a blessing and a curse. A blessing because to me, it's not only the best comic book slash superhero film of all time, but overall one of my all-time favorite movies. Now, it's a curse because nothing in that genre has even come close to it. Now, that's excluding The Dark Knight Rises, which is a topic for another episode that will be coming out soon, but I'm talking about all other comic book films. The Dark Knight was grounded in reality. Its characters didn't have superpowers. They were human and flawed. Again, I say this is a curse because I've never been able to get into the Marvel films because of how good The Dark Knight is. And don't even get me started on the Batman v Superman film, although I will say that the Ultimate Edition, which came out last week, makes a little bit more sense. Now, spoiler alert if you've never seen The Dark Knight. At the end of the film, Batman is able to capture the Joker alive, and it's left open-ended on what will happen in the next story. On part three of the Dark Knight trilogy, I will look at The Dark Knight Rises the sequel that didn't come out until four years after The Dark Knight. You know, I've read many posts on the internet that suggest that The Dark Knight wouldn't be as big a film as it is if Heath Ledger hadn't passed away. And to that I call bullshit. A great performance cannot and will not be denied. The fact that Ledger won 32, 32 Best Supporting Awards for his performance should say it all. In a year of striking film images, perhaps the most unforgettable was that of a man... With his face smeared in clown makeup, gleefully sticking his head out of a speeding car, relishing the night wind and reveling in the chaos he has unleashed on the streets of Gotham City. Menacing, mercurial, droll, and diabolical, Heath Ledger, as the Joker in the Dark Knight, kept us all on edge, anxious to see what act of appalling mischief he might commit next. With this bravura performance, as well as with a wide range of other roles to which he put his unique signature, Heath Ledger has left us an original and enduring legacy. And the Oscar goes to Heath Ledger in the Dark Knight. First of all, I have to say this is ever so humbling, just uh, being amongst uh, such wonderful people in such a wonderful industry. Firstly, um, we'd like to thank the Academy for recognising our son's amazing work. Warner Brothers and um, Christopher Nolan in particular for allowing Heath the creative licence to develop and explore this crazy Joker character. To Steve Alexander, Heath's mentor, special friend and agent for 10 years. We love you, Steve. This award tonight would have humbly validated Heath's quiet determination to be truly accepted by you all here, his peers, within an industry he so loved. Thank you.
Heath was such a compassionate and generous soul who added so much excitement and inspiration to our lives. We have been truly overwhelmed by the honour and respect being bestowed upon him with this award. Tonight we are choosing to celebrate and be happy for what he has achieved. Heath, <clears throat> we both knew what you had created in the Joker was extraordinarily special and had even talked about being here on this very day. We really wish you were, but we proudly accept this award on behalf of your beautiful Matilda. Thank you. Thank you. What the hell is going on? No tremendous proceeding is expected. Oh, really? Do I look like I'm running Wayne Enterprises right now? You're hit! On the stock exchange, it didn't work, my friend. And now you have my construction crews going around the city at 24 hours a day. How exactly is that supposed to help my company absorb Wayne's? Believe us. No, you stay here. I'm in charge. Do you feel in charge? And this gives you power over me? What is this? Your money and infrastructure have been important. Till now. What are you? I'm Gotham's reckoning. Here to end the borrowed time you've all been living on. Pure evil. I'm necessary evil. So The Dark Knight comes out 2008, and it becomes massive. The movie earns more than a billion dollars. It's beloved by millions, and Heath Ledger's performance of the Joker will probably never be topped. Now, I say this as we are a month away from the release of Suicide Squad, and I might be proven wrong, but I don't think so. And as you can imagine, when a film takes in over a billion dollars, of course the studio executives want more. They quickly approached Christopher Nolan and said, what's next? Well, for Nolan... He was ready to take a break from Batman and begin work on his next film, Inception, a film written, co-produced, and directed by Nolan. In the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio plays Cobb, a professional thief who is able to enter the minds of others and steal their private information. Once again, Nolan cast Michael Caine in his film. He also added newcomers Tom Hardy and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Made on a budget of $150 million, Inception was a huge hit taking in a little over $800 million worldwide. My first experience seeing Inception was not good. It had been out for a couple of weeks when I finally decided to go see it on a Sunday afternoon. I opted to not go to the big multiplex in my town, instead deciding on the classic old movie theater that was built in the 1940s. Now, long-time listeners will remember me telling a story, a disastrous story, about seeing Man of Steel there in 2013. I walked up to the box office, Paid only $6 for a matinee ticket. Not bad at all. Bought a soda and a large popcorn for 8 bucks. Again, not bad at all. 
And I walked into this massive auditorium. To this theater's credit, it's beautiful. Super tall ceilings, vintage one sheets hanging on the red curtained walls. Now, there wasn't stadium seating, but hey, I mean, the place was built in the 1940s. And I remember thinking that uh, the screen could be a little bit bigger. But to my delight and surprise, I was the only one in the theater. And the movie was starting in just a couple minutes. And then it hit me. There is not a single person in here. This movie's only been out for a couple of weeks. This movie's made hundreds of millions of dollars so far. Why am I the only one here? As the lights dimmed and the trailer started, I heard a voice behind me say, Excuse me, sir, are you here to see Inception? I turned to see a man in his 40s in a partially wrinkled suit, the classic assistant manager getup. I am, I told him. He sighed and said, I'm sorry to say, but you're in the wrong theater. I am? I'm in the wrong theater? There's another theater? He told me, follow him, as if he's given this speech many, many times. And we walked out of the auditorium, and he ushered me up to a set of stairs. I just kept saying to myself, I can't believe there's another theater in here. He pointed to a door, and I walked into this room. Now, notice that I didn't say auditorium or theater. I said room, because this was a small room with maybe a 100-inch screen. As I was looking at the screen, my focus shifted to the right, to the seating. At best, there were 40 seats there and 39 of them were taken. Got to be kidding me. As I made my way to the only open seat and sat down, my knees were pressed up against the person sitting in front of me. There was no cup holders. And as I looked at the screen, it was so close to us that I literally had to look up, down, side to side just to see everything. This may have been the most uncomfortable I've ever been in an air quote movie theater. I made it through about two trailers. I had enough. I got up. I mumbled to the crowd, good luck, and I made my way out of the lobby and down the stairs, and wouldn't you know it, I ran into the same assistant manager. I looked at him and said, you've got to be kidding me. Why are you showing a movie like that? Why aren't you showing the movie in the main theater? He replied that the owners made the decision that the new Angelina Jolie film, Salt, needed to play in the big room. Really, I said? Look how many, how many tickets have you sold for that screening today? He shrugged and smiled, and I walked out. I rushed over to the Beagle Cinemas and was able to actually see the movie. Now, I happen to work just a block from the theater, and whenever I talk to people who are planning to see a movie there, I always forewarn them, and I've received quite a few thank yous in return. Putting Inception aside, why did it take four years to get to The Dark Knight Rises? Well, there were a number of factors. In the last episode, I mentioned that screenwriter David S. Goyer had penned a three-film treatment way back in 2005. The premise he had would have introduced both the Joker and Harvey Dent in the second film. But Harvey Dent would only play a minor character in that role. His character would become the central villain in Part 3. You see, Batman was to capture the Joker at the end of Part 2, and when Part 3 opens, it's the Joker's trial. It's during this trial that one of the Joker's henchmen throws a vat of acid on Harvey Dent's face, thus he becomes Two-Face. Of course, we all know that Nolan made changes to the origin of Two-Face, opting to have him become the villain in Part 2, thanks to the Joker. Now, this harkens back to what we talked about in the last episode about the source material, The Killing Joke, in which the Joker claims that even good men can become evil. Now, there was never a question of whether or not the Joker would return for the third film. Nolan and Ledger got along great, and they had a very strong mutual respect for each other. All of that changed when Ledger passed away, leaving the third film in complete limbo. Nolan told Warner Brothers that he would need some time to figure out where the story was going to go now. Warner Brothers told him to take all the time he needs. But because of the popularity of the Joker, the studio executives asked Nolan and Goyer to consider having the Riddler as the main antagonist, even suggesting Leonardo DiCaprio to play the villain. After considering the request, Nolan opted not to go in that direction. 
The story that he and David S. Goyer were working on was calling for a villain that could match up against the Batman on a physical level. The decision was made to go with Bane, a lesser-known villain in the Batman canon. Bane was first introduced in Batman The Vengeance of Bane, released in 1993. Bane was not only physically strong, but also possessed a genius-level intelligence. Raised in a prison, as a boy, he often had visions of a bat, leading him to develop a phobia of the flying creatures. He was also told tales of the Batman by other prisoners, and once he escaped from the prison, he set out to Gotham to bring down Batman. If you're seriously considering going back out there, you should hear the rumors surrounding Bane. I'm all ears. There is a prison in a more ancient part of the world, a pit where men are thrown to suffer and die. But sometimes a man rises from the darkness. Sometimes the pit sends something back. Bane. Bane. Born and raised in hell on earth. Born in a prison? No one knows why or how he escaped, but they do know that once he did, he was trained by Razel Gore, your mentor. Bane was a member of the League of Shadows. And then he was excommunicated. And any man who is too extreme for Razel Gore was not to be trifled with. I didn't realize I was known for trifling with criminals. That was then. And you can just strap up your leg and put your mask back on, but that doesn't make you what you were. If this man is everything that you say he is, then the city needs me. The city needs Bruce Wayne. Your resources, your knowledge. It doesn't need your body or your life. The time's past. You're afraid that if I go back out there, I'll fail. I'm afraid that you want to. Big screen audiences got their only taste of Bane in 1997's Batman and Robin. Although the character was physically huge, he lacked the master intelligence. You know what? That's it. I'm not talking about Batman and Robin anymore. Please. Thank you. Thank you. Just, I'm done. I can't talk about that movie. Moving on. Warner Brothers officially announced production of The Dark Knight Rises in 2011. They greenlit the project with an estimated $300 million budget. For filming locations, Nolan chose not to use Chicago. Instead, spreading the production to many different cities, including Pittsburgh, New York, Newark, Los Angeles, London, and even some parts of India. Going back to 2009 for just a moment, that was the year that James Cameron released Avatar. To this day, the highest grossing film of all time. And one of the key selling points of Avatar was its use of groundbreaking 3D cameras. And in the years to follow, most major Hollywood blockbusters were either filmed in 3D or at least had a post-conversion into 3D. Nolan essentially had a blank check when it came to the production of The Dark Knight Rises. He could spend his money on whatever he saw fit, but he expressed zero interest in 3D. He also opted not to use a single digital camera. Now, digital was a format that was becoming widely accepted as the new norm. Nolan stated that he felt that shooting on film was a dying art and he intended every scene of The Dark Knight Rises to be shot on film. He also once again opted to use IMAX cameras as much as possible. Now, in The Dark Knight, he was able to get a total of 28 minutes of footage. For The Dark Knight Rises, he was able to get a little over an hour. IMAX still wasn't without its limits. The cameras were still very loud, and any dialogue that was filmed on an IMAX camera ultimately had to be redubbed at a later point. Talking about the casting for just a moment. For the role of Bane, Nolan turned to Tom Hardy, an actor he had just worked with on Inception. 
Hardy was quickly climbing the ranks in Hollywood in films such as Rock and Rolla, Sucker Punch, Bronson, and Warrior. For his role as Bane, Hardy had to bulk up to a really serious level. And something I found a little bit interesting was that Hardy is only five foot nine. At any time that he was on screen with Batman, he had to wear three-inch lifts just to match Christian Bale's height. Why didn't you just kill me? You don't fear that. You welcome it. Your punishment must be more severe. Torture. Yeah. But not of your body. Of your soul. Where am I? Home. Where I learned the truth about despair. As will you. There's a reason why this prison is the worst hell on earth. Hope. Every man who has rotted here over the centuries has looked up to the light and imagined climbing to freedom. So easy. So simple. A light shipwrecked men turning to seawater from uncontrollable thirst. Many have died trying. And then here that there can be no true despair without hope. So, as I terrorize Gotham, I will feed its people hope to poison their souls. I will let them believe that they can survive so that you can watch them clambering over each other to stay in the sun. You could watch me torture an entire city. And then when you truly understood the depth of your failure, we will fulfill Razagul's destiny. We will destroy Gotham. And then, when it is done, and Gotham is ashes, then you have my permission to die. Another thing that I found really interesting when I was doing my research on The Dark Knight Rises is that nobody gave a shit about the casting of Tom Hardy as Bane. I think this argument could be made that nobody knew who Bane was. Thus, there was no, well, if you knew Bane from 97's Batman, I'm not talking about that. Okay, moving on. What I'm talking about is the fact that nobody gave a shit about Tom Hardy as Bane. That couldn't be said for the casting announcement of Anne Hathaway as Selina Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman. Much like Jack Nicholson's role as the Joker in Batman 89, Michelle Pfeiffer turned out a very good performance as Catwoman in 1992's Batman Returns. In August of 2011, Warner Brothers released the first official photo of Anne Hathaway in her Catwoman costume, and once again people came out of the woodwork to criticize Nolan's casting choice. I pulled the following statement from an old MTV News article written in 2011. With regards to how Hathaway will pull off the storied complexities of Kyle's character in comics, depending, of course, on which direction Nolan's Catwoman may take, our experts are cautiously, cautiously optimistic. Quote, I think I had the same feeling as everyone else when Anne Hathaway was cast. She looks too sweet to play Selena, said Jenna Bush, writer for AOL's movie phone. She looks too, well, totally sane. She doesn't exactly ooze sexuality, but perhaps I'm willing to buy it after seeing this photo, she admitted. Now, there's no kitty cat hat, and, and fans will probably flip if she spends the entire film as Selena, but she does look pretty darn badass. 
At least she's not wearing that god-awful Halle Berry outfit. Critics and naysayers were wrong again about the casting of Anne Hathaway, who shined in the film. It is Mr. Wayne, isn't it? Although you don't have the long nails or the, the, the facial scars, sir. That what they say about me? It's just that no, no one ever sees you. That's a beautiful necklace. Reminds me of one that belonged to my mother. It can't be the same one. Because her pearls are in the safe. Manufacturer clearly explained is uncrackable. Oops. Nobody told me it was uncrackable. I'm afraid I can't let you take those. Look, you wouldn't beat up a woman any more than I would beat up a cripple. Of course, sometimes exceptions have to be made. I personally decided after 2008's Dark Knight to trust Nolan's casting decisions. For the role of John Blake, a Gotham City police officer, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was tapped to play the part. Again, Nolan went back to the well of actors he had previously worked with. This was also true for the casting of Marion Cotier as Miranda Tate, both of whom were in Inception. Christopher Nolan made a conscious decision not to mention the Joker at all in the film, and this was out of respect for the passing of Heath Ledger. But I did mention in the previous episode that The Dark Knight leaves it open-ended as to what happened to the Joker. I will share with you what the official novelization of The Dark Knight Rises has to say about the supervillain. It is alluded to in the book that after Harvey Dent's death, the Dent Act is put into place, placing all criminals in a holding area inside a prison while they await trial. The novel suggests that because of the high profile of the Joker, it wasn't safe for him to be placed in the same prison. Rather, they decided to keep him as the sole inmate of the Arkham Asylum. Reading even further into the book, it is suggested that he probably escaped and his whereabouts are officially unknown. The Dark Knight wrapped up principal photography in November of 2011 and the advertising machine went into overdrive. Warner Brothers had sponsorship deals with everyone. It was like a Star Wars movie coming out. Everything from Formula One race cars to Mountain Dew. Now, even though Marvel's flagship film, The Avengers, was due out in May of 2012, ask anyone what movie they really wanted to see that year, and it was definitely The Dark Knight Rises. I even tricked myself into thinking I would enjoy The Avengers, buying a ticket a week after its release. I think I remember the best part of that experience was the fact that they played The Dark Knight Rises trailer right before the movie started. I left The Avengers 45 minutes into the film. As soon as the aircraft carrier decided to fly out of the water, I was out. As July 20th, 2012 approached, I was beyond excited. Very similar to how I was with The Force Awakens. Now, I had to work Thursday, July 19th, so I wasn't able to hit up the midnight showing. I was going to have to wait until Friday morning. When I woke up that morning, I turned on the TV, and everything changed. 
Good evening. It's one of those huge multiplex theaters. It's in this community. It's the same kind all of us go to, the same kind you can find in just about every American community where the same thing is going to be happening this coming weekend as happened here last night. It was the midnight premiere of the movie Batman. It was a sold-out crowd. And a few minutes into the movie, what took place then will go down as one of the largest mass shootings in American history. We wanted to lead off with the latest numbers tonight, and they are absolutely staggering. 71 people were shot in this incident, 12 of them dead. We have 59 wounded, and some of the wounded are struggling with critical injuries. The suspect in this case has been identified as a 24-year-old Ph.D. candidate, University of Colorado, said to be a San Diego native to start off with James Egan Holmes. He arrived apparently, according to police, after much planning. He was suited out from head to toe in tactical gear, carrying multiple weapons. And imagine this inside this state of the art theater, this premiere movie, so many of the people in that theater had no other way of knowing that this wasn't somehow part of the presentation until it was clear the gas canister he fired off was real to suppress the crowd and the rounds coming from his weapons were real. I had a ticket for the 11.30 a.m. showing that morning, but decided not to go. Not out of fear, but out of respect for what had just happened. Going to the movies for me has always been a form of escape. And from 1996 to 2012, I would see an average of 40 to 50 movies a year in the theater. Do the math. And at no point ever during any of those movies did I ever in the slightest way feel like I wasn't in a safe place. I could be in a theater with three people or 300 people, and it was always a comfortable environment. Sure, I could get a little annoying from time to time, but it was safe. That shooting forever changed that for me. That Sunday, as I drove to the theater, ready to see the movie, I couldn't help but notice the police presence. Two cop cars right at the front entrance. There were makeshift signs hanging in the door stating that not even purses were going to be allowed in the theater. As I sat in my seat, the theater was only half full. This was opening weekend. I couldn't believe how sparsely populated the theater was. I also found myself checking where the emergency exits were and deciding to sit next to the walkway in the event that I would have to dive over just to make an escape. I couldn't believe that I was having these thoughts. Is this the new normal? Is my personal sanctuary tainted forever? Well, four years down the road, I still find myself checking my surroundings, but I will say that the tension has certainly eased up. Money really doesn't matter when something like that happens, but it needs to be noted that prior to the shootings, experts had forecasted that the Dark Knight Rises would bring in close to $200 million's opening weekend. Well, that number fell below expectations with a $160 million opening weekend. And given the mood of the movie-going public, it's completely understandable. In the years to follow, the shooter... James Holmes would be found guilty of 170 different counts, including 12 counts of first-degree murder. He was ultimately sentenced to death. Critics praised the film, and it currently holds an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. Surprisingly, though, it didn't garner a single Academy Award nomination, not for effects, not for technical levels, not for editing, not for anything, which I found a little bit surprising. But for me, I stand by what I'm about to say. I love The Dark Knight Rises. To me, it is on par with The Dark Knight. For a movie that's two hours and 45 minutes long, it never got bogged down. Anne Hathaway is terrific. Christian Bale is terrific. Morgan Freeman, 
Michael Caine, Gary Oldman, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Bane is one of the great villains of all time. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, and I can't believe I'm going to share this with you all, but at the end, when Batman appears to sacrifice himself, I was tearing up for a couple of reasons. One, because since 2005, I had become so invested in the story, and it was coming to an end. And it had real emotions attached to it, both on the screen and behind the scenes. And these were also partial tears of joy. I just kept saying to myself, Nolan did it, he did it, he did it. He created the perfect trilogy. He ended it on his terms. There's nothing out there for me. And that's the problem. You hung up your cape and your cow, but you didn't move on. You never went to find a life. To find someone. Alfred, I did find someone. I know, and you lost them. But that's all part of living, sir. But you're not living. You're just waiting, hoping for things to go bad again. Remember when you left Gotham? Before all this, before Batman, you were gone seven years. Seven years I waited, hoping that you wouldn't come back. Every year, I took a holiday. I went to Florence. There's this cafe on the banks of the Arno. Every fine evening, I'd sit there and order a Ferny Branca. I had this fantasy that I would look across the tables and I'd see you there with a wife, maybe a, a couple of kids. You wouldn't say anything to me, nor me to you. But we both know that you'd made it that you were happy. I never wanted you to come back to Gotham. I always knew there was nothing here for you except pain and tragedy. And I wanted something more for you than that. I still do. Truthfully, I was a little disappointed when it's revealed that Bruce Wayne is still alive. I want all of you listeners to email me your thoughts on The Dark Knight Rises. I'm still to this day surprised by the the negative response the film gets. If I get enough emails, I'll record a bonus episode and discuss the emails. And I want to know wh- whether you like the film, good or bad. I, I want to know. Email me, hitmpodcast at gmail.com. So my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening. I really wanted to see Batman meet his match. There's a new kid in town. (laughs) This is the first time that Batman has come across anybody who is superior physically. Mr. Wayne. Wayne's not ready to be reasoned with. When Gotham is ashes, you have my permission to die. Some people want to watch the world burn. Wayne's come to pull the pin on the grenade. At the beginning of The Dark Knight Rises, we find a Bruce Wayne who's been damaged by his experiences as Batman. You are as precious to me as you were to your own mother and father. I swore to them that I would protect you, and I haven't. How much longer can he allow this pain to control what he does with his life? Alfred feels that it's his duty to help him find a way to put it behind him. You're not Batman anymore. You know what Alfred is? He is us. In this incredible world, he's not tough like all the others. These conversations used to end with an unusual request. I retire. Lucius and Alfred. Between the two of them, we try to keep his moral compass pointed in the right direction. And Commissioner Gordon, to some extent, has been left on his own running the, the police in Gotham. 
Jim Gordon really is the conscience of Batman, isn't he? the true test of a hero confronted with their darkest fears being taken all the way to the edge how do they come back when you cleaned up the streets you cleaned them good pretty soon we'll be chasing down overdue library books my character john blake is a, a proud police officer and in the midst of i think a lot of cynicism he remains really idealistic and someone who really believes in what he does did they kill him It's the true completion. I won't bury you. Buried enough members of the Wayne family. It takes everything to a whole new level. We were in this together. And then you're gone. It's a multi-layered story with massive amounts of action. The Batman has to come back. Chris was able to amp up the stakes for this last movie and really take it to places that I don't think anyone's expecting. What if it doesn't exist anymore? She must. The How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash How Is This Movie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash How Is This Movie. You'll find all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.